to Cannabis in Focus, the show that helps you make informed decisions about the use of medical cannabis for yourself and your loved ones. Our goal is to balance out the misinformation around cannabis with solid science and to restore it to the mainstream where it has been used as a valuable medicine for thousands of years. We offer a broad perspective with guests ranging from medical practitioners and scientists to producers and patients. I'm your host, Miriam Knight, and today's guest is David Krantz. David is a certified epigenetic coach specializing in nutritional genetics, the endocannabinoid system, and cognitive health. His background is in music and audio engineering, but after biohacking his way out of some unusual and undiagnosable medical issues, he shifted his focus to helping others achieve optimal health too. Using genetics as a guide to help clients understand their unique nutritional and lifestyle needs, he began to apply this same approach to cannabis. He now researches and lectures on how genetic variations can affect an individual's response to cannabis, and he's made it his mission to translate the often difficult-to-understand research into plain English. He sees clients both remotely and in person in Asheville, North Carolina, and he's passionate about helping people harness their untapped creative potential. His website is david-krantz.com. That's K-R-A-N-T-Z.com. Welcome, David. Hey, thank you, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I feel so aligned with the mission in terms of uh, really redefining the way that people perceive cannabis and really having an informed and you know scientific viewpoint to be able to talk about it with. Well, I think this is really an idea whose time has come, so let's get on to it. Sounds good. So how did you come to focus on genetics in particular as a factor in individual responses to cannabis? Well, that's a, that's a great question and a good place to start. So uh, like you mentioned, my background is actually in, in music and um, I was actually hired by a doctor in town where I live to, to create some audio programs for um, some things that he was doing with meditation and um, a brainwave entrainment, that type of thing. And his focus was on genetics and I ended up training with him. Um, it turned out that, you know, our interests were extremely aligned beyond the, the audio needs he, he had. And uh, I, I ended up training with him and actually helping him develop some of uh, the research that he's been using to uh, work with clients with nutrition, genetic nutrition, uh, and that type of thing. So um, it just kind of was a natural fit in terms of the, what I was already doing for my health and beginning to help other people with their health. And adding the genetic piece in was just such a powerful way to really get to the bottom of, of some of these individual kind of idiosyncrasies that you see with how people respond to, to different foods or substances. And once I realized that there was similar information out there and research that had been done on cannabis and THC and some of the individual responses that people have to it, it just absolutely, you know, it got me super interested in it. And uh, I've spent about the last year really diving into the research and um, kind of just aggregating it for people and making it more readily available and understandable. Well, this is so intriguing because anyone who has been working with cannabis medically 
knows how difficult it is to predict what a person's response will be and what the right dosage is, what the right strains are, what the right mode of, of um, ingestion is. So um, combining the science of nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics um, really is fascinating. And I think it would help if you actually defined these for our listeners. Absolutely. So nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics are relatively new terms kind of in the, the canon of, of science and, and medicine. And, you know, we only mapped the, the human genome about 20, 15, 20 years ago. So we've only been able to look at this level of information and uh, these functions in the human body fairly recently. Uh, so if you haven't heard the phrase nutrigenetics or nutrigenomics, don't worry, most people haven't at this point. Um, but they're, they're actually slightly different, and it's kind of important to define them. So nutrigenetics is understanding the uh, differences in response uh, to different foods and substances, and then maybe making certain modifications in accordance to that. So, uh, for example, there's a gene called APOE that predisposes certain people to have higher levels of neuroinflammation um, if they eat saturated fat, diet high in saturated fat. Now, the nutrigenetic approach to that would be to say to those people, hey, you know, let's make a lifestyle modification and eat less saturated fat so we don't trigger this predisposition that you have. Uh, and that's a little bit different than nutrigenomics. Nutrigenomics is actually looking at how we can change the response of the genes or the expression of genes with different substances. Um, and a, uh, a really good example of this, and we'll, we'll get into some of this later, is some of the, uh, the CYP enzymes that are responsible for breaking down certain substances in the body. And we know that um, you can actually upregulate and, and cause those genes to produce more of certain substances depending on if you uh, add certain things in. So, um, you know, we're, that the nutrigenomics part is really looking at how, how do we modify some genetic expression through epigenetics, which is looking at how certain genes kind of turn themselves up or down depending on the response to the stimulus. So, um, you know, nutrigenomics is, is just fascinating and a lot, a lot of uh, herbs and, and uh, things that we've known for, for many, many years are actually operating kind of in a nutrigenomic way. And we're just starting to begin to understand how that's happening. Hmm. When we spoke earlier, we talked about the work of Dr. Ethan Russo, who coined the notion of an endocannabinoid deficiency. Um, what uh, I'm curious about is how you have found cannabinoids from cannabis to work in a nutrigenomic uh, uh, way? That's a great question. And that's something that uh, in my personal experience, I, I don't know enough yet in terms of working with clients to really tell you what that looks like in the long run. But I think a, a great example of that would be, we do know that in, um, in most cannabis users, most uh, long-term users, uh, the cannabinoid one receptor tends to get downregulated, and there's actually less function and less density of that receptor in people that use cannabis in the long, for a long time. Uh, and that, uh, 
that's an, a, an example of nutrigenomics where when you're putting the substance in the body, you're changing the response over time. And it, it appears to be that there are uh, certain epigenetic modifications to that gene that are causing that expression to be different. And interestingly, I was actually just reading a paper earlier today that they've identified a variant in, the, in that same gene, the cannabinoid 1 receptor gene, where certain people that carry that variant actually upregulate the production of cannabinoid 1 receptors, uh, and that's in peripheral lymphocytes, not in the brain. Um, but the, it, there were, it was kind of an unexpected finding that depending on what gene variant you have to begin with, you might actually have a different response to cannabis over the long run. And that's very similar to what I do um, when I work with clients is, you know, get a feel for what are kind of these initial conditions and then uh, what are the, what are going to be the responses, you know, two different substances over time. And for one person, um, like I mentioned before, that saturated fat could upregulate some things that cause more inflammation. And then for someone else, it actually may do the opposite in a certain context. So there's a lot of variables and a lot of complexity there, but um, that's one of the things I'm really interested in kind of parsing out. Well, that's really uh, very pertinent to an aging population because we have this uptick in Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. Uh, do you think that that's related to the kind of fats people are ingesting? Oh, absolutely. And the APOE gene is a really great example of that, um, where we know that uh, people who carry the uh, APOE4 variant, uh, there, there's the two, the three, and the four variant, and uh, you have two of those alleles. Uh, you can either be a 3-3 three, three or a 3-4 or a 4-4. Four, four. And we know that um, people who carry the 4 variant have a higher incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but it actually does seem to be very dependent on their lifestyle. So uh, people who eat higher amounts of saturated fat throughout their life or don't exercise uh, are at much, much higher risk if they carry that APOE4 variant. Um, but when you look at the total number of people who carry those variants, about 60% of them get Alzheimer's. So you have to wonder, well, what is that 40%? You know, why is this not deterministic? And, you know, it's when you look at these genes, they're, they're, they're almost never deterministic fully, unless you're talking about a real serious mutation. Uh, what we're talking about here are common variations that are going to influence the likelihood of, of someone developing something like cognitive decline or Alzheimer's. But through understanding how uh, these genes might impact something like neuroinflammation, we can actually begin to recommend certain things for specific people that would prevent that. And I think absolutely the types of fats that people eat are going to influence things like cognitive decline and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. One of the things in the modern medical approach to healthcare is looking for the single cause, the single magic bullet, <clears throat> the single solution. But uh, people are complex. So uh, what other lifestyle factors do you counsel people on when you're giving them nutritional counseling? Mm -hmm. So that, that's a really great point. And I want to make one differentiation between the concept of something being complicated and something being complex, uh, because you can uh, look at the human system and uh, think about it in 
like you said, trying to reduce everything to one variable and trying to figure out how, well, how is this one variable going to, uh, you know, impact function in, in, in a variety of ways. And if you just keep looking at this, how one function uh, affects everything else, it becomes very complicated. And you're trying to look for linear um, kind of connections between input and output. And it's just not how the biology works. And the more and more we work, we look at it, the more we really have to take a systems approach that's going to not just say, well, uh, Alzheimer's has, it's pretty easy to say like, um, you know, obviously saturated fat isn't the only thing that's going to influence Alzheimer's. There's all of these other factors and epigenetics is, is a great way to look at that because it actually kind of levels the playing field in a way between, uh, all these different inputs. So, uh, for example, uh, nutrition, uh, toxin exposure, uh, light exposure. That's been one of the biggest revelations recently, I think, in, in my mind about the human body is our relationship to light cycles and circadian rhythm mm. and how that impacts uh, things like inflammation and, and disease processes and uh, just overall having a resilient and healthy system. And, you know, really when we talk about health, we're, we're talking about the ability for uh, the system to be resilient and to work within a variety of different contexts and situations, be able to be stressed out in, you know, different ways, but then come back to baseline. And so, you know, uh, looking at all of these different things that impact that ability to come back to baseline uh, is kind of what I do and, and really help people, you know, figure that out, what, what are going to be those inputs Um and, you know, exercise, of course, is, a, is another one. Relationships, stress, mental stress. Um, another one that I, I think is so interesting is actually what are you doing with your time and, and what are you doing with your, um, your life from a passion and purpose perspective? There, there's actually an amazing set of studies that came out of UCLA last year uh, by Dr. Stephen Cole uh, looking at the difference in people's perceived happiness between uh, what he referred to as hedonic happiness versus eudaimonic happiness. And they looked at epigenetic changes and um, in immune, immune profiles of these people and people that were going out and uh, predominantly getting uh, happiness from, uh, you know, pleasure-seeking activities, going out and drinking and, and you know, kind of these short-term bursts of uh, you know, hedonism to, to, to a degree, uh, had actually a worse immune profile than people who considered their predominant source of happiness to be from doing whatever it was that made them feel like they were, you know, there on earth to do, to mm -hmm. fulfill mm -hmm. their passion and purpose. So when you look at all of those factors uh, and say, well, you know, can you doing the thing that, make, that makes you feel love and joy impact your immune system in a similar way that being exposed to a toxin or eating food that isn't good for you, um, you know, when you look at how those things are connected and how you can have all these various disparate inputs into the system and have similar results, uh, that's a, you know, that's a marker of a complex system that, you know, might have kind of a nonlinear um, endpoint but that you can affect change in the system in so many ways. And now that we're under, beginning to understand more about the endocannabinoid system, that's a, another really high impact piece. 
I want to circle back to this, um, but I think it might be helpful to just give a little further explanation of epigenetics. Yes, absolutely. So epigenetics is the study of how genes change their expression in response to different environmental variables. So that could be anything from, you know, the food you eat to the exercise you do to uh, traumatic events, uh, both in your lifetime as well as your ancestors' lifetime. Uh, We know that epigenetic marks on the genes can be passed from uh, parent to child And there's some really interesting studies looking at, for example, um, descendants of people that were in uh, what they call the Dutch hunger famine during World War II, where there was a blockade of trains and they had a a very, there was maybe six months or so where they just didn't have access to food. And depending on what trimester a baby was in during that famine, they actually have seen differential uh, health conditions ranging from obesity to actually protection against obesity, depending on uh, when they were exposed to that, uh, you know, in, in the womb, mm-hmm. uh, and also effects on grandchildren too. And I'm actually very, very interested in this myself. And it's one of the reasons why uh, I've been so interested in epigenetics, because uh, my grandparents were both Holocaust survivors. And there's been some interesting studies looking at um, uh, stress response in children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. And I know that myself personally, I've had to do a lot of work to manage my stress response. And I believe that the, uh, the kind of ancestral trauma that my family experienced impacts the way that my nervous system works now. Uh, but the beauty of epigenetics is that it, is, it, that it can change over time and uh, you know, uh, that's one of the things that I um, focus on with clients is how to actually change that. Now, epigenetics can also describe the way that your body changes over time, just as you grow, Um, you know, different uh, uh, physiological development stages are controlled by epigenetics too, where uh, after a certain point, say, for example, the lactase gene, you know, we know that all babies are born and they can digest their mother's milk. And, uh, and then at around the age 13 or 14, about 50 or 60% of people start to lose that ability to digest lactase or lactose. Uh, and that's, that gene is epigenetically being turned on or off. And we, uh, we understand some of the mechanisms that can cause that to happen. And, and those are from little chemical groups that get attached to the DNA in certain places called methyl groups or acetyl groups. Uh, methyl groups tend to turn down the expression of that gene and acetyl groups tend to turn up the expression of that gene. Uh, and then beyond that, there's a number of different, what they call post-translational modifications that can be made uh, also uh, in response to epigenetics, but that gets very, very complex. Okay. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the bottom line is that despite what we were taught in uh, high school biology, our genetic makeup is not fixed. It is subject to environmental influences and can change. Um, one of the big things that can change our epigenetic expression actually are our thoughts, our continuous thoughts. Um, yes. Yeah, the the uh, the studies on that are, are really interesting when you look at meditation and and some of the uh, epigenetic profiles of long term meditators. 
where uh, you know the two or three th- two or three thousand different genes have been uh, identified that express differently with long-term meditators versus ones that don't, and even just short-term meditation seems to affect uh, you know roughly around a thousand genes. This is not the show for it, but I will give a plug to the whole notion of meditation. Really, really good idea for everyone. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so, uh, getting back to wellness, um, one of the things that, or two of the things that cannabis is so useful for is pain control and insomnia. Uh, when we're talking about lifestyle influences, there's this kind of hierarchy of needs. And yes, you, ha- you need food. But when you're in pain or when your circadian rhythm is out of whack because you can't sleep, um, almost nothing else matters. So um, how do you go about finding the best solution for your pain, and, and I'm particularly looking at the cannabinoids. Well, right now, I think in terms of using cannabinoids for pain management, there the approach in general is to just try it. You know, I, I, I think that most practitioners are out, out there are looking for more precise ways to go about this, and uh, I'm hoping that some of this genetic research that's coming in the pipeline is going to help elucidate some of the mechanisms why some people respond differently uh, to certain cannabinoids differently for pain relief, things like neuropathic pain uh, especially. Uh, The the research isn't quite there yet, but... um, How far along are you? Uh, I'm, I'm personally not doing any of that research. I'm looking at what other people are doing for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, they. I, I, yeah, they were looking at, at what other researchers are doing. Um, but, uh, there are certain, uh, channels and, and receptors that we know that cannabinoids interact with, uh, that have to do with pain perception. And because the endocannabinoid system is, is so ubiquitously expressed, uh, in the body, there could be a whole number of different reasons why it's impacting pain that we don't know about yet. But, um, you know, I think that's, that's really exciting. And I think that we're, that we're going to see uh, evidence of certain kind of pre-existing genetic reasons why some people respond to uh, uh, cannabis better than others. And just as, as an example, we can look to uh, the breakdown and metabolism of, T, of THC to say why some people might even just need a higher or lower dose just in general to, to uh, get the same amount of THC in their system that regardless of these other potential variants uh, you know, that might affect pain relief, we know that some people just in general are going to need a higher or lower dose um, to begin to manage their symptoms. So you have been studying the influence of genetics on uh, nutrition and, and nutritional metabolic types. Um, have you found any correlation between um, the strains or the, the form, the, the cannabinoids, the actual cannabinoids that are effective for a person and their metabolic type? You know, I haven't had enough, I would love to say yes, but I haven't had enough uh, volume of, of data to look at in terms of actual people's anecdotal experience with it. 
Uh, I have some hunches as to what might cause certain things to be different for certain people. Um, but I, I don't have any uh, real data yet as far as strains. And I think that, I mean, that's the next step is to really understand why a certain strain is going to impact someone differently. And, uh, you know, just, just THC alone, THC and CBD alone, uh, is a, is a very complex picture in the way that they interact with certain receptors. And the, uh, once you start to add in all of these other cannabinoids and terpenes and other constituents in the plant, um, it, it almost makes it so that you have to start looking just at case reports, uh, lots and lots of case reports and start to make connections. And that's kind of what I'm in the process of doing right now uh, with my own clients is just continuing to, to log data. And um, in, you know, without the, the, the studies that I hope are coming out uh, and, and, and working on without them, I'm just kind of logging these things. So, um, you know, I haven't found any super strong correlations that I would be comfortable talking about right now. Um, but I'm pretty positive that as this goes on and we collect more and more reports and, and uh, really are able to, to understand this, we're going to see some things like that happen. Well, going back to your nutritional genomic studies, mm-hmm. um, just to give us an order of magnitude, how long has the research in that area been going on and where is it today? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, it's been going on basically since we mapped the human genome. That was one of the first things they started to do was look at, uh, can we uh, understand why a certain group of people responds this way to say carbohydrates and this group responds differently. So there, there's thousands and thousands of studies looking at things like that. And um, I'm very fortunate to have uh, been trained by a physician who's been using this in his clinical practice for eight or nine years uh, because there's actually quite a big gap between the research and the clinical side of this where there's tons and tons of research papers, but very few people applying it yet. Uh, but you can apply it, and we do see really excellent results with clients, uh, so much so that um, the doctor I work with actually just stopped running micronutrient panels on people because the genetics actually had a better correlation. So, uh, you know, you, you do see... Um, you, you, you do see vast improvements sometimes in people who say, for example, uh, you know, a client has been trying to do the paleo diet, very high, um, very high in protein and, and fat. And, you know, they thought, well, I have a friend that, you know, it worked great for. So they mm-hmm. try it and their cholesterol levels all of a sudden go through the roof. And when you look at the genes, you can often identify certain uh, factors that w- would, you know, cause that to happen. And when you can show someone, you know, kind of the, the proof of that and say, hey, you know, the, the, we understand that people with these different genes have a predisposition to, um, you know, have elevated LDL cholesterol with uh, high protein intake. Uh, it's, it's much easier than guessing at, at what diet or what nutrition profile is going to work. So this looking at the genes, is this a pretty well-developed uh, technology? How do you go about doing it? Yeah, so, you know, I want to be clear, and it's similar to what we were talking about before, about how modern medicine is kind of uh, very narrowly focused on finding a one gene per function or, or one receptor per function or one um, 
uh, molecule per function kind of thing. But what's really become apparent in the genetic research and especially applying it with people um, clinically is that what they call polygenic risk scores are more applicable, which is really uh, looking at instead of one gene, looking at, you know, five or 10 or 15 genes that all might affect a similar uh, outcome. So you can, you can look at, say, for example, saturated fat, you can look at the APOE gene and get a feel, you know, if someone has an APOE4, it's pretty clear they, they should stay away from saturated fat. But uh, you want to look at that in conjunction with, you know, five, six, as many possible things as you can to kind of get a weighted feel uh, for metabolically how people are going to respond and then understand how those different pathways and genes interact with each other to create a network effect. And that's one of the uh, uh, kind of the the difficulties in the field right now, because you see a lot of direct-to-consumer tests, uh, things like 23andMe and uh, other diet genetic diet programs where someone sends in, you know, their, uh, their, their uh, sends in a swab and they just get a report and that's it. And there's no actual interaction with the practitioner who can take a history of them, uh, get a feel for really, you know, how has this person's life gone? And I'd like to compare it to uh, people trying to interpret their own lab tests at home where if you have, you know, really high level knowledge, like you can get a lot of information out of lab tests, but oftentimes the, um, the results that people are getting from direct to consumer tests are leaving out some of the, the important part of actually working uh, on this over time and applying it in a way that allows you to, to see it as a network effect and see it in this complex system kind of way and not just expect it to be a one gene per function kind of thing, which is kind of because most people are, uh, you know, used to the, the Western medical system. It's how a lot of people think about it. So I, I'm, I'm cautious when, uh, when looking at some of the, the easy, you know, one click and buy kind of tests that are out there, it, it is a bit more complex than that. And there's fantastic practitioners that are using this uh, and, it's just uh, right now the industry is in an interesting spot because there's a, a lot of people that want it to be a one gene per function thing, but it's just not. So it takes some trial and error in certain ways to really understand how to use the information. Well, I think particularly being a musician as you are, you know that uh, we are not uh, one tune, one note uh, uh, creations that we're, we're, a harmonic-based um, system. And it's really the interactions of all the vibrations and all the harmonics of the, um, the food we ingest, of the uh, genetic makeup we have that uh, creates all of these interesting interactions. Absolutely. I, I love that metaphor, too. You, you really can look at the human body as this complex, ever-evolving symphony uh, that is sort of conducting itself in a way. Uh, but then, you know, outside influences are going to change the, the melody or the, the harmony a little bit. And it's about being able to adapt and respond to it, just like you would if you're improvising in a jazz combo when, you know, someone else, uh, you know, 
strays a little bit from the uh, the expected chord progression? Are you going to be able to follow that and interact with it? And frankly, that's, in my opinion, in, in music where some of the most interesting things happen is in those unexpected moments where uh, you, you're just, you got to respond. And uh, looking at the, the human body and, and all of these genes and variables um, as this multi-layered level system where everything is interacting with everything else. Uh, yeah, it's very similar to music. And I, I do feel in a way that my, uh, my background kind of has prepared me to understand this in a more intuitive way. Uh, another aspect of the multiple influences of what we ingest um, is the... Uh, entourage effect that they talk about with cannabis. Um, there are some 400 or so compounds that have been identified, about 111 or 113 cannabinoids and terpenes and, and um, other things. Um, and it is not just THC or just CBD that does the trick. It's the combination of the above. Um, just as you were talking about the lifestyle factors, the multiple lifestyle factors. So what I'm trying to get at in this show and um, in our conversation is not to look for magic bullets, but to expand your your thinking to include all of the lifestyle things that you were talking about to appreciate the gift of plants when um, we talk about the terpenes in cannabis these same terpenes are in other lots of other foods and and flowers and um, uh, aromas and essences so there are many ways to support our systems and what we're trying to do is to achieve optimal health and i think that's what your company is trying to do as well tell us a little bit about the company you're working for david yeah absolutely um and i totally agree that it really is about looking at uh the endocannabinoid system from different angles and being able to look at well what other substances are going to impact this uh, beyond just cannabis, uh, which, you know, not to say, not to downplay that at all, but there's a whole lot of different ways we can work with it, I think. And we're going to learn more about that in the future as we start to really, you know, get more solid data. Um, but the company I, I work for and I'm affiliated with is called Apiron, uh, A-P-E-I-R-O-N. Um, it means limitless in Greek. And that's really the ethos of the company is what can we do to help people become limitless in their, in their potential and really, you know, bridge the gap between where people are now and where they are and where they could be. And, you know, really looking at how do you take a whole systems approach to that? Uh, because it doesn't just require good nutrition and it doesn't just require exercise. It requires the whole uh, human system to come online and and really uh, really uh, really help people develop into you know people that they were meant to be and and this mirrors my own path and understanding uh, how you know all of the different parts of my life are are going to impact uh, you know my future and um, 
Yeah, Apiron, uh, I, I love what they're doing. It's run by uh, Dr. Dan Stickler and, and Micah Hamilton. Uh, uh, he's a physician and uh, she's a um, uh, corporal in the, in the Air Force, actually, who's a human performance specialist. So between the kind of uh, peak performance aspect and the um, and the more general medical side of it, we're, they're really marrying the two of, how, you know, what are the techniques that elite athletes and people like that are using and how can we take that and make that available to the general public? Mm-hmm. What do you think are the most um, bang for your buck in terms of, of interventions? Uh, you're going to laugh when I say this because it's almost too simple, but sleep, you know, most people don't sleep enough. And, uh, when someone comes to me and wants to optimize their health and improve their health, uh, the first question I'm going to ask is, well, how are you sleeping? Because we know that if you're not sleeping, not, not just in terms of, uh, quantity, but quality of sleep, everything else is going to suffer. And so you look at, well, at least I look at, and the appear on presents the model, of looking at things like you mentioned kind of in a almost like a Maslow's hierarchy kind of way of saying, well, uh, it, until sleep is optimized, we, you can do all the nutrition stuff or uh, all the supplements and you want, but you're only going to see minimal impact until you get these base layers kind of, uh, uh, you know, figured out. So you look at uh, sleep and then look at nutrition, then look at, at exercise, then look at adding uh, extra you know, supplements or nootropics or things like that, and really treating it um, in kind of a, a sequential way in, in a sense, but also understanding that, hey, you know, maybe actually optimizing the sleep is going to take uh, doing more exercise and or, or adding a certain uh, amino acid or, or precursor in somewhere. So it's about understanding, like, you know, again, that how these, these complex systems interact. Mm-hmm. That, that is very interesting and makes absolute sense. Um, I know there's been a lot of interest in CBD for sleep. In fact, uh, I think one of the, the biggest applications of CBD is for uh, sleep. And, and, and it's also related to pain because if you're in pain and you can't get comfortable, you, you have interrupted sleep. So um, I think that's one of the areas where cannabinoids really shine. Absolutely. And, you know, I wonder how much of that sleep effect that people get from CBD is a result of the anti-anxiety effects too. Right, right. Uh, You know, because a lot of uh, trouble that people have with sleep, especially falling asleep, you know, anxiety issues with sleep kind of will manifest more often as difficulty falling asleep more so than staying asleep. Uh, but, you know, because CBD has such powerful anti-anxiety effects, I really wonder uh, if that's impacting people's sleep more than uh, more in a general sense. Well, the anti-anxiety effects also um, impact pain uh, perception uh, because if you're anxious, uh, you're much more sensitive and much less tolerant to pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So um, what is the thrust of your, um, your studies going forward? Where, where are you putting the most uh, concentration? 
Yeah. So right now I'm, um, I'm actually developing a panel that people can take uh, to look at all of the genes that we know about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, I'm currently in the process of designing some of the algorithms for that. Um, and that's going to look at uh, things like uh, how you break down THC, um, potentially, you know, how, what your receptor density and sensitivity might be like in terms of you know, the genetic predispositions, uh, also different levels of endocannabinoids. We know that certain enzymes that break down endocannabinoids like FAAH are influenced by certain genes. So you can get a feel for, um, you know, if you might have higher or lower natural levels of anandamide or, or, or 2AG um, from looking at the genes. So uh, right now, my research is uh, mostly inv involving kind of aggregating everything that's out there, um, coming up with a way for people to have a more direct um, understanding of that, uh, to be able to do a genetic test and, and understand some of the dynamics of the endocannabinoid system in that way. Um, and, so when you uh, say develop a panel, uh, mm -hmm. what do you mean? Yeah. So uh, the way that I, I run genetic tests, and then this is through Appiron, I'm working with Appiron to develop this, um, is when I, when I see a client, I'll, I'll run a nutrition panel, which consists of about 60 or 70 different genes that are related to different aspects of metabolism and nutrition and, and things that we can understand about uh, you know, people's individual response to different foods like carbs, oh. fats, proteins. Okay, so hold. So, okay. hold it, hold it. So mm -hmm. when you say you're looking at 60 or 70 genes, mm -hmm. um, you're looking at them from a, an on-off point of view or from a, a location point of view? That's a good question. So uh, I'm looking at them from a, uh, a variation point of view. So uh, we're identifying, we're looking at what are called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. And these are specific places in the DNA where you have a one letter difference between one person and another. So, you know, uh, DNA is made out of these nucleotides that are abbreviated A, C, T, or G. And we know that certain people, um, there are certain common places in the DNA where that can be switched between one person or another. And that's really what goes into making you, you, uh, to a degree. Um, you know, there's also the aspect of, uh, environmental interaction over time, but on a, on a very basic level, that might be why you have brown hair and I have blonde hair or someone has blue eyes or green eyes. And then when you, you can think about how we have all these individual, um, things, you know, you look at that on the biochemical level and not just on the kind of trait macro levels that you can see with your eyes. Um, so we're, we're looking at uh, these, uh, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are not mutations. They're, they're technically not mutations. Some people will refer to them as mutations. Uh, mutations are really considered anything that happens in less than 1% of the population. Uh, these SNPs and, and polymorphisms are things that are common enough that uh, they occur in a good percentage of people. So based on knowing whether someone has an A or a T in a certain place or a G or a C, you might be able to discern certain predispositions. And for example, um, when I say, you know, variations in the APOE gene, that's going to be those one letter differences between one person or another that's going to impact that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And I just want to give an analogy for our listeners. When you look at computer code, it's all based on ones and zeros. So it is not stretching the imagination to understand how a genetic code that's based on four letters as opposed to two actually can totally determine um, the structure or the, the end result. Um, so getting back to what you uh, do with these panels, mm-hmm. are you actually working in a clinical fashion with clients or on, on this? Uh, yes, uh, and, and I I will be working uh, on a clinical level, level with anyone who's interested in looking at the endocannabinoid genes. Now, my client population, just so you're aware and listeners are aware, um, are more people that are generally healthy and looking to improve their health. So I'm not working at, with as many people um, as, say, a, you know, a doctor would be helping people with pain and uh, more serious medical conditions, but you know, these same things apply across the board. And really what I'm hoping will happen is uh, making uh, a panel that can give people insight into how the endocannabinoid system uh, functions might be useful for other practitioners that are working with more, um, you know, sick populations that might have, um, you know, more of a real dire need to understand why certain things might be functioning uh, a certain way. So do these panels give insight into, for example, you were talking about Alzheimer's and cognitive decline um, or um, the ability to to lose weight on a particular diet. Um, Would they be useful in that? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what they're designed for is to really... um, you know, help people help guide people in the right direction in terms of something like diet or uh, in terms of something like supplements and, and, you know, what vitamins or micronutrients your body might just generally need more of because you might, uh, say, have lower absorption in, in an area and you might be able to tell that from a certain genetic variant. Um, or uh, say, for example, there's a there's a gene that codes for an enzyme that converts beta carotene into retinol. And that's the active form of vitamin A in the body. And some people have a very poor ability to convert uh, beta carotene into the version of vitamin A that they can actually use. Uh, and we can look at that and look and see in the genes um, if that's the case. And so uh, someone who's tried a vegan diet where you're not getting any animal sources of vitamin A uh, someone with those genetic variants or those SNPs might have a much harder time maintaining health on a vegan diet because they might need uh, extra uh, retinol or activated mm-hmm. vitamin A. And so it's it's looking at a whole bunch of different factors like that. I'm guessing that um, most medical insurance would not cover this kind of genetic counseling. Uh, is it something that a normal person can afford? Uh, yes, it, it, it depends. I mean, most people, um, most people, if they, you know, value their health and see it as a good investment for the future, I think can find the the money for it. Uh, I, I try and make it as affordable as I can for people. Um, and, uh, you know, I've had, I have clients from all different income levels, so I'd say, yes, it's, it's fairly affordable. Cool. 
So, David, if people want to learn more about this, uh, is there information on your website? Yes. So uh, on my website, I have a full, uh, it's about hour and 15 minute presentation on cannabis uh, genetics specifically. And I go uh, really in depth into some of the specific genes that impact endocannabinoid function. Uh, And I have a couple articles on there. Uh, but I encourage anyone whose interest is piqued by this conversation to go check out that webinar because it, um, it it goes a, a bit more in depth than we're able to here. And uh, there's slides and uh, graphs and, and diagrams and things that make it visually a little easier to uh, to get the the data and information. And just to repeat, your website is David Hyphen Kranz K R A N T Z dot com. Yep, that's correct. Okay. Well, David, um, it has been fascinating. I hope it hasn't been too uh, uh, challenging for our listeners, but it's um, the kind of thing that really is the future, I think, of both uh, of, of positive health, both in terms of cannabis and, and nutrition in general. And a lot of people consider cannabis actually just another superfood. So, yeah, (laughs) I I really want to thank you for being with us today. And I hope that we stay in touch and you keep us informed of the development of your research. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I agree. Cannabis is another superfood. And when I look at, you know, uh, uh, what it what it is, I, I treat it as another tool in the toolkit. And I hope that we can create a political and social climate that sees it that way. And, uh, you know, having conversations like this is really important to getting there. So thank you for providing that opportunity. It's been a great pleasure. We've been speaking with David Krantz about epigenetics and uh, cannabis. And I am Miriam Knight. Please visit our website, CannabisInFocus.com. And I look forward to next time. Goodbye.